Welcome to the Love Live podcast. We have Saucia Didier. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Salter is a pilot with Virgin, uh, but I'm going to stop there. You t- tell us, tell us about that. How you end up talking to me and what you do at Virgin and all that sort of stuff. So I, so I'm a pilot at, uh, at Virgin, as you said. I'm actually a second officer on the A350. This whole journey actually took a very long time to be here. I only wanted to become a pilot when I was about 17, which is actually quite late for for most pilots. Most pilots is when they're uh, five year old little boys, really. But yeah, I I started when I was 17 and went to uni to do my my uh, private pilot's license. You don't have okay, to go, to go uni, on, but... rewind a bit, Sorcha. You don't get away with it. So what happened at 17? Made you go, I want to be a pilot. <laughs> so it's really just totally random. I. I basically grew up in France and we're in the middle of the countryside and it was just a random day in summer where uh, because we're in the countryside, we're just near all these air is these fields and which normally have, you know, corn and, and wheat and that kind of stuff. And just on that summer day, they were having a kind of aviation fair. But by aviation fair, I mean, there was one helicopter and one micro glider, <laughs> which consisted of this uh, fair. But I loved roller coasters at the time, and I thought this would be so much fun. Like it, it might be a little bit similar. It's not at all. But I thought, okay, I'll give, I'll give it a go on this micro light glider, and I absolutely loved it. I really, really, I, even in the micro light, because that's yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty. It feels like you're outside, but you, you're wearing, you've got your seatbelt on, etc. You're, I was, we were going along this this uh, field, which obviously had loads of holes in it, so we were literally bumping along, but just like, just kept getting more and more excited as we just took up some speed, etc. And then by the time we got to lift off, and my belly just sunk, and I just, I can't describe it in any other way than everything in my head just went quiet. Which is really bizarre because obviously the mm. the motor is quite loud, etc. Uh, there's a lot going on, but in my head it really went silent, and I just felt so at ease and so relaxed. Obviously, I didn't I didn't have the controls myself, but I got to so I got to look out and just see all the trees and the houses and the people, and it was so freeing. I think to be yes. to be in the sky and to have nothing around you that's that's holding you back or holding you down or anything like that and you literally just have so much freedom and and I just felt so happy really and I just wanted to to chase to chase that that adrenaline that excitement that love really and that's uh it la- it's lasted me the good part of the last 12 years that's how long it's taken to get into this uh, this second officer role at Virgin Atlantic, but wow. yeah, just that little memory. And that, that was one it. Memory so that was, like last. The, that was like an epiphany, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I didn't tell anyone for the longest time because I thought this is really silly. I don't know any pilots at all. You know, no one in my family's in aviation, and it wasn't until I think I, I made it known when my grades weren't exactly the best at school. <laughs> And my dad said, what do you think you're going to do with this? And I sheepishly said, 
I want to be a pilot. And he said, you better get your act together. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so it just took, it, it took a long time initially for, for me to, for that idea to mature in my head, for me to realize that actually mm. this might just be something that I could I could potentially do that wasn't just for everyone else, you know, maybe, maybe I can do it if I put enough hard work and, uh, and effort into it. So, so yeah. So what age were you when you started your training to be a pilot? 18, actually. It was that the private pilot's license I did the summer that I turned, I was, I, yeah, turned 18 and that mm. was just brilliant. I mean, I must say, I did it in a month, so it was quite a sporty, wow. yeah, quite a sporty endeavor. <laughs> and I just remember being so scared the night before. I really thought, "What am I doing? I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Like, what was I thinking?" And then, of course, the nice thing about doing it over a month is that you get just amazing continuity. Yeah. And so, initially, you know, you you don't know anything, but you. you you suddenly start to, you know, accumulate all this experience or this knowledge and suddenly you get to the end and you think it's only been 30 days and look how far I've come, you know, but, uh, but yeah, that it was, it was, Amazing. that was wonderful. Yeah, it was. That was it. So, <laughs> so interesting, you know, so yeah, literally 17, you have that moment and then, then by 18, you got your private pilot's license after doing an intensive month. It's just mad. <laughs> what happened? What happened next? So I I finished I finished uni and I did I, there were sponsorships were already starting to become available and I knew that I would have to do it I would either have to pay for it myself and therefore you know start accumulate a lot of money so so probably mm. work for it first and then do the training or I could get on a sponsorship but I also internally felt that maybe I needed a bit more maturing before I got into that seat. I didn't really ever want to find myself into in any of the seats on an aircraft where you're flying hundreds of people and feel like actually I need to grow up a bit or I need to develop more skills, uh, yes. regardless of what those skills are. So I felt more comfortable first doing some just do as a professional work so I worked in I still worked in aviation but doing some navigational charts and and that was that was brilliant because it really introduced me to the world of of uh just well the professional world really so which which does always feel like quite a, a daunting step when you're 21 or so but I'm yeah, yeah. so glad that I accumulated all all these years of uh of professional work because I after I did the navigational charts, I went to Virgin Atlantic because I knew that they had a sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And I thought, let me get in there and just see how it goes, see how, what the company's like. If I like it, apply to the sponsorship and I'll be really well placed to understand the company, the operation, you know, long haul, et cetera, and get to speak to the other pilots that are already in and, and who can kind of introduce me to certain things. And, and that was that that was the, the best decision, really. It was a it wasn't like a move up. It was a move sideways, but it would open more doors and it really has because I, I haven't left Virgin uh, for the past seven years. So, so you went into, felt, did you go into uh, sort of the flight planning bit then? Is that where you went? 
Yeah, exactly. I was in what we call navigation services, but it looked after the flight planning system. And I did a bit of flight planning on the side with it as well. So, so interesting, so good. Mm. I mean, even today, when I when we get flight plans for ahead of a, a New York flight or whichever destination, pilots will say to me, what does this mean? Why do people, why do the flight planners actually write this? Or what does that that code mean? And it's so nice to actually be able to, to, to tell them what it is or to explain the background to the system and, and how it calculates which route is the most optimum to fly. So, so yeah. So I guess the pilots don't need to know all the details, do they? They just need to know enough that they trust that you've done your job and they just need to know that it, it looks right because yeah. they've their own training. Is that, is that right, right? Yeah. So they wouldn't necessarily need to know how has the system come up with this particular route. Mm. And whereas when you're a flight planner, you can see, oh, the system is looking at the best route for winds, the best route for navigation fees. You know, there's a, a lot more that, that comes into play. Whereas, yeah, the pilots would just see what that that uh, preferred route is that's been calculated, and they would just look more at what airfields has, has have been picked as your your alternates along the route. Um, what are the weathers? What are the kind of notices that apply to a particular airfield, etc. So it's just different different specialities, I guess. Yeah, between you mind, I know we're going to talk about your piloting. Would you mind just telling me a little bit more about? Because this is a question that comes up a lot in the group around, because we've got a lot of weather checkers. You know, nervous <laughs> flyers check the weather. They're like, they're better informed than the Met Office. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. but, and I always say, you know, stop it because there's people that do that. And, you know, so you're, you, you've been doing that. And I find that really interesting. And the other thing that you've kind of mentioned, which I also talk to people about, is, you know, the alternate airfields, places that you can go and how it's plotted. And people will say to me, do they pick routes that that avoid the turbulence or does the turbulence not an issue? So maybe if we just throw those bunch of those questions at you. Yeah, so we look at a lot of different things. The number one thing is when you're looking at a route will be what kind of airfields are nearby. You always want a route to have really good airfields nearby. For example, if you've got like a, a medical issue on board or something like that, you need to be sure that the airfield that you could go to in the middle of your route would be mm. a good one to go to where you can land safely and there's a good hospital that can take the, the passenger off and, and, and deal with them. And the some of the other items that they'll look at is terrain as well so there's a lot of terrain when you're going over towards the the east so if you're looking at um, Shanghai or Hong Kong those kinds of routes go around a lot of terrain and if we were to have any issues we need to think about how can we come down just altitude without going obviously into a mountain so the yeah, flight planning awkward. system <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ruin your weekend. That Silence one. on board. <laughs> so the flight planning system will also look at your what we call escape routes, which allow you to get away from the terrain and get to a suitable airfield so you can land there safely. I mean, there's a whole host of things, but yes, turbulence is another one as well. We can the flight planners can see the when a, a whole a bunch of weathers kind of develop especially over uh, for example africa or just around the equator there's a lot mm. of 
thunderstorms and clouds around there and they will sometimes divert the route or change the route so that pilots don't have to worry about diverting but we'll always take enough fuel so that we can do the diversions we would never go into any cloud that looks suspicious and in fact on my last flight to Joburg we did we had to divert quite a lot because we wanted to make sure that we weren't going into any suspicious cloud but sometimes because it's is slightly near the 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 big clouds you, the air does is a little bit has a little bit of turbulence but it's really nothing to be worried about i mean when we look at our systems we can see nothing's changed the altitude hasn't changed speed hasn't changed everything looks normal it's just that we're we're going through a little bit of a a, a bumpy ride but um we're not in anything bad i love that that's really <laughs> reassuring I guess on top of that, then we move. We'll move to your back to your career. Um, <laughs> the the other question, just to confirm it, because you've been involved in the planning, is people are often worried about going across large expanses of water. You know, and, uh, and I, we, we talk about you know, being within a sort of minimum flying distance, even with an engine failure and stuff. But I wondered if you could just add a little bit to that. Yeah, so it's really interesting because I mean. Before I did long haul or was involved in long haul operations, I always did think, gosh, those flights that go over, you know, the North Atlantic and it just it must be quite scary. You're far away from everything. But actually, now that now that I've been at Virgin, I've been I'm familiar with the operation. I see that actually the whole flight plan route takes into account different scenarios that might happen and ensures that regardless of what scenario you have, you can still safely land at a nearby suitable airfield. And if you think about certain failures, yes, it's not great and it won't necessarily allow you to... You, to go all the way to your final destination but it's perfect the aircraft is perfectly safe to land somewhere nearer that's suitable so actually i mean they've done so much so many studies and and checks to to ensure that the aircraft could be approved to fly far away from nearby airfields and everything was was fine so yeah i'm i'm no longer worried or nervous and now that as a pilot i brief the contingencies when we're on board, every time that we're approaching oceanic airspace, and we're always discussing, you know, what will we do if this happens? Where, which direction do we turn? What is the airfield that we are looking to? And what exactly will the procedure be? I feel so comfortable and confident that we could easily land safely nearby and make sure that everyone comes off in one piece as well. <laughs> Superb. That's very helpful. Thank you. So, so you, you joined Virgin and then you're kind of sussing it out. And then how, how did you then, then you joined the sponsorship scheme? So tell us. What, yeah. Yeah. So I actually failed this one, getting, getting onto the sponsorship post. Okay, move um, on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I failed it quite a few times. But every time that I did, actually, I, I, I learned so much and uh, and it forced me to, to continue to grow or continue to develop my skills so that by the time I, I my final go and and uh, my successful go, I felt 
much more confident and comfortable. And I actually thought, you know what, if, if this doesn't happen, then it's okay. I can go, I feel now totally confident and comfortable that I could go and, and just start my training myself. That's okay. You know, but obviously sponsorships mm. help uh, from a, from a financial point of view. But uh, so what, what was the sort of testing like to get onto a sponsorship scheme? Cause they're, they're not so, they're not so common now, are they? I mean, I, I know they mm-hmm. were, and quite a lot of pilots were lucky enough to either go through the forces or to get a sponsorship. Very few sort of self-starters that I've come across because it's so expensive. It is. It is, it is so expensive. So the particularity of the Virgin Atlantic sponsorship scheme was that actually once you'd gone through the assessment at the training school they felt that quite clearly you already have the skills that are needed to be a pilot but are you a virgin atlantic pilot and Mm -hmm. so there were two stages to it the first was going through the training school's assessment so they did normal hand-eye coordination kind of assessments maths group exercises interview and then the virgin atlantic side of things was basically doing group exercise and an interview in which you had normal interview questions but also had to present on something that you're really passionate about so they were really keen to basically figure out who is someone that I can sit next to for 12 hours that can that makes me feel safe that would be able to take my family on board and I would feel like They'll be absolutely fine and really well looked after. And everything that happens on that flight is going to happen safely. And I think it's it's a really good way of making sure that you the pilots that you bring on actually fit the ethos and the the values of that that company. And and you can see it really because I, I feel I don't know about what you think, but I feel like Virgin Atlantic pilots do have a a personality, you know, a certain personality. And it's and the way that they that they ask you to prepare for something, a presentation that you were passionate about is such a lovely way of of just really seeing us for who we are and what we love doing and what we're passionate about. And I think that's it just shows how much of a a people company and business Mm -hmm. Virgin is. Um, I love that because you've got obviously you'll have your your pilot minimum standards for every airline and then you'll then the next bit is about could I work with you and also do you fit the sort of the culture and the mix of the the organization going for you know in this case Virgin Atlantic and I guess probably most pilot schemes in every airline will have their own kind of is this you know, is she or he yeah. our, our type of pilot? You know, so I, I like that. Yeah. So that's very. I think that's very reassuring for people. You know, so you pass the test. You're a virgin <laughs> human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Passed the test and then started what what would normally be eighteen months of of training, but because uh, there were a couple of operational complications, the we had to we had to delay portions of our our training along whether that was to do with because of the the training school or or what was going on at the time at Virgin Atlantic I mean particularly for my course we were bringing on Monarch pilots because obviously what had happened to Monarch we Mm -hmm. were trying to bring people across and it meant that to train those pilots out up 
the cadets would need to be held back a little bit. So it would have it would have taken 18 months, but ended up taking about two, two and a bit years. But we were we were quite lucky in that during our gaps, we had time to work in the office and deal with certain projects. And that was brilliant because some of the other cadets hadn't worked for Virgin yet. So they got to really understand what it was yes. all about and yes. get involved with some really, really amazing things. Things that, I mean, I personally feel passionate about. We basically, we stood up in at the the old Virgin Atlantic headquarters at the base. We had a day that was for future flyers and future engineers. Oh, nice. So yeah. we had local children from Crawley that came and that we're able to to play and and see our rigs hall and just how we train our our pilots and our cabin crew and get to listen to to presentations which was dr- really fantastic and we also hosted a simulator at Heathrow and we got to get uh, young people to sit in the seat and just oh, have a go brilliant. and <laughs> it was a it was a, um, just amazing yeah I, I love that we were able to do that so even though we had some time out of training it was fantastic, you know, and to try and inspire other people from different backgrounds to come through and, and hopefully become pilots or, or engineers. That was really special. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. So the the two two bit and the bit years, how is that kind of chunk? So I know how other pilot licenses work. So I've looked into it and heard about that. But how does the sponsorship sponsored program work in terms of how much time do you spend? ground school versus in the air and all that how does that all work so we do about six we do six months of ground school so that's the same across regard across people who are either sponsored or non-sponsored um so you go through about 14 topics and it is heavy going they are Mm. they are difficult subjects it's just the the quantity the the volume is is quite intense but it's not it's not super difficult so to speak and then you do about i personally did five four to five months of single engine work so that's we were bobbing around new zealand actually doing that so that was fantastic (laughs) and brilliant sights uh, brilliant views and then the particularity of my course and my license is that we went straight from a single engine Cessna, so quite a small four-seater plane, to six months of simulator, A320 simulator work. So, yeah, going from a four-seater Cessna to, yeah, what what in simulator world is uh, is what 180 passenger jet was uh, was quite a steep learning curve, but it was fantastic, and it meant that when I came out of my training. I felt really comfortable with mm. the aircraft. And that's what's amazing about my licenses. You get so much time doing or in being in a sim on the jet that you're going to fly, presumably for life, that actually you know so much about it, even on your first day. And I remember my training captain on my very first day saying that he was really impressed and that he's he's noticed that a lot of people coming through with with my type of license feel really comfortable in the aircraft right from from d-day and i thought that said a lot really mm-hmm. about how how good the training is and obviously i i was in a school that that had 
really good experience with with new new pilots etc so they obviously know how to train us yeah. into pilots from from the first so day sure. I've, got, I've got to cut in here so what's the you keep saying my type of license so i'm curious yeah. about that so how does what you went through differ to the more well not traditional or other routes so my license is a multi-pilot license or what we call mpl whereas you may have heard of other people who've got atpl yes. which i think should stand for air transport pilot license so what they'll have done for atpl route the difference is in the final portion of your training what they've done is after their single engine cessna work for example they've done twin engine real life flying for yes. another maybe four to five months Mm-hmm. And then they have about a month on the jet aircraft in a simulator for the jet aircraft that they're going to be flying in. So they have less time in the jet that they're going to fly in, but they have more time in a real life twin engine. Yes. But the real life twin engine that they fly is very different from the jet. Whereas oh. I spent no time on a real life twin engine aircraft six months on the jet that I was going to fly. So it just meant that I could spend time really looking into the books, feeling really comfortable with all the different buttons, everything that it does, so that I felt capable on on that first day, really. But yes, thanks for picking me up on it and making uh, yeah, sure I clarified. I, I had heard, I knew they were doing something different. I wasn't sure how it worked. And like with anything where there's a slight change, you'll get, you know, people who went through the traditional route. Everyone, everyone's route was the best, wasn't it? <laughs> you all end up the yeah. same place, don't you? <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. At the end of the day, when you've got, yeah, 20,000 hours, nobody asks you how you got there. No. It's just about, yeah, what kind of different experiences that you have. And and the diversity is is really what what shines through or what makes a, a good yeah. cockpit you know so you're right it doesn't it doesn't really matter the way that you go about it and actually there's there's a, a huge amount of value in doing it the the atpl route because then you're it opens you up to more aircraft whereas i was tied to a particular aircraft type mm-hmm. which when covid hit and obviously, a lot of airlines uh, made redundancies, etc. It just made it very difficult to find jobs elsewhere. So, how do you feel about the fact you're tied into Airbus at the moment? That's your type rating, isn't it? So, is that all right? You, you... I love, I love Airbus. I really love the. Because you're French. <laughs> yes, that. I mean, I've got to say, I've got to side <laughs> with my country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I feel very European at heart, <laughs> but but yeah, I love the Airbus. I guess it's easy for me to say that because that is the only aircraft that I've I've mm. flown in real life. Although the Boeing looks really nice as well, I must admit that I am I like to be very organised in life, and I love the way that in the Airbus aircraft everything is very organised. There is almost like little quadrants or little rectangular boxes for the different systems and the buttons that correspond to the given system. Whereas in, in the Boeing aircraft, it's a bit more, the, the locations of the buttons are a bit more diverse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically it suits your uh, your organized street. Well, it's, it's nice and tidy. 
Yeah, but I but I can really see the advantage of a of a Boeing aircraft because you get a lot more of the feedback and the, the feel for the aircraft. And you know, the Airbus is more what we say point and shoot. So you don't need to move the the control column as much. Whereas the for in a Boeing aircraft, the yoke, you really need to to move it a lot to just keep the aircraft stable. But that is that is nice because it's more similar to how a single engine or a twin engine aircraft work. You get more of the aerodynamic feel of the aircraft. So it is more interesting, I guess, from a from a flyer point of view. Yeah, so you're, you're usually very excited. So you've been out now. When did you finish your training? You were let loose. When did that happen? I finished in September 2019 mm-hmm. and I had six months where I was seconded by Virgin to EasyJet. So I did six months of short haul hops, which was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. There wasn't a dull day. It was brilliant. And you really got your your flying skills up very quickly. You know, four takeoffs and landings in a day. It was brilliant. And then COVID happened. So I took two years where I went back into the offices at Virgin, did something completely different, worked in business resilience. But that was a really great opportunity because I got to be involved in lots of different things, a different side to, to the business. And obviously, the business resilience role requires, well, really thrives amongst disruption. And that's all that we had during COVID, like many <laughs> other businesses. So I had a lot of work coming my way. It wasn't a furlough type job, but it was brilliant. I learned so much and I got involved in things that I would, I never thought that I'd get involved with, you know, between Brexit and, you know, COVID or cruise having COVID down route or even, you know, looking at Afghanistan and what happened there or even the political issues in, in Tel Aviv, et cetera. A lot of things were impacting our operations, but we managed to navigate through that safely and uh, make sure that everyone was okay, always accounted for, etc. That our flights were able to depart safely. So it was it was a, a huge learning curve, but I did I did love it. That's a, I think that's really good because a lot of pilots are so specialised. They go and be, they go do their pilot thing, and that's what they do. And, and they kind of miss out on some of the stuff that you've experienced by seeing what goes on in the office and getting to understand all the other things. I think that's really good. It gives you kind of quite a breadth. So I, I understand that you're heading towards to be the flight ops director, and this is just <laughs> some part of the brilliant pathway. Isn't it? <laughs> no denial. <laughs> You know, I, I I used to have a very linear kind of mindset to do my uh, with my career. And I remember listening to Carolyn McCall, former EasyJet CEO, and the way that she talked about her career. And she said, I mean, she was a huge advocate of having a squiggly career. Mm. And actually, that really changed my mind because the way that she explained, I mean, I think she was au pair nanny in Singapore. And, and from that to all the way out to, you know, what she is now just made me realize that the more opportunities you grab and the the more varied your experiences actually the the better you are suited to more things and the better you can do your job and that's 
all that I've ever wanted to to do really I want to be able to do my job to the best of my ability so what is the next thing that I can you know get get better at so that I can I can do that well love Um, that (laughs) yeah so yeah that sort of versatility agile mindsets really coming across so tell us about what you're doing now then sort of routes you're doing and all that sort of stuff so I've just so in in about June I just started the A350 course to come back into into Virgin Atlantic a long haul flying finally and uh, so I did about two months of training and then have been out on the line uh, since then so I've done a couple of Joburgs and New York. So that's been that's been really lovely, brilliant to finally get to do some some long haul and really experience all the things that I was flight planning for before. Mm. And it's been it's been great. Basically in the in the second officer role, I take over when we get to the the cruise portion of the flight. So when when people are worrying about over the going over the Atlantic, I feel comfortable because I'm the one. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I'll just make sure that we've set up the aircraft systems accordingly so that if we ever had anything, we can pretty much press one button and immediately the aircraft will take us there. And we brief on different contingencies. We speak to different air controllers. The same will go or similar will go when we're going through Africa as well. But you just get passed on to more air traffic control centers, obviously. But that is that is brilliant. It's quite different and similar at the same time. But you've got different challenges and different yes. simplicities as well. The air traffic control is quite is relatively easy over the Atlantic, but then obviously you're far you're far away from from things. So you just need to think about different things and and how you would manage any challenges. Yeah, just yeah. on the off chance that it happens, even though we know that the likelihood is is so low, you have to you have to be prepared. That I think is is this the the second role to being a pilot is you have to you be prepared. We're always prepared, always briefing, always thinking about what are the threats, how do I mitigate them? How do I ensure that I'm mm. always staying safe, whatever the circumstances? I remember one of the captains that I flew to Boston with saying that he'd just gone for a jog in the morning and the first thing he thought was, okay, there's snow on the ground during my jog, so how will that affect my flight later on? You know, so they're always (laughs) thinking about how is this going to affect my flight? How can I just make sure that I've thought about every threat there is and mitigated against it? I love that. And I think that's very reassuring for people because quite often... People will be in the cabin, you know, as passengers thinking, what if, what if, what if? Yeah. And I always say that's what, you know, when you used to be able to go in and talk to the pilots, you could have said yeah. at any point, where's our nearest suitable diversion map right now? And they'd be able to tell you because that's what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah. You're always thinking about the what ifs and planning and stuff. And it's, it's hard for people to get a sense of that. But the, yeah, so Saucer's on it. So just let let Saucer's worry about she's you know she knows about the flight planning so they've been signed off uh, the resilience team they've been signed off as well and now she's in she's in the flight deck and uh, so the, so what's the A three fifty like I haven't been on that it is beautiful I've got to say it is stunning it's it is so 
Yeah, yeah. And the flight deck is huge. People won't be able to to see me, obviously, but I'm five foot two. So I literally love, I mean, I don't need that much space, but there is so much space in the flight deck. It's brilliant. And it's very futuristic in the sense that all everything pretty much is all screens, huge screens, some of which are touch screens. Which I mean, I personally think it's an air in an aircraft is is incredible. It mm. makes things so much easier. It's it's you know getting up with with the times really. It's got functions to it which are brilliant. You know, you just talked about what if the aircraft system actually has a function that is called what if, and so no. you can plan. Yeah, you made you, that up. You made I, that no, up. No, I promise. I promise. <laughs> And so we'll actually work. Yeah, let's on... just pause for a minute. So nervous spies, <laughs> listen to that. There's a the, the aircraft is also catastrophizing. <laughs> <Brilliant>. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just set up the systems to look at different what if scenarios, and you can just plot. Okay, if if this particular scenario happens, this is the route that I want. How is the aircraft going to take me there, etc.? How much fuel will I have on landing? Okay, I've got I've got plenty of fuel. That means that I, I feel safe and confident that that is a, a good, suitable airfield that I can pick for my what if scenario. So it's it's brilliant. I'm sure it's, you're um, making this up. I love this. <laughs> <You're making> it, up. <laughs> it also has a auto emergency descent function which previous Airbuses didn't didn't have, although the, the A380 might have. But it basically means that if for any reason you have cabin depressurization, or even, for example, if the whole flight deck and cabin becomes hypoxic, which yeah. some, sometimes means that you can't, you can't, you're not very fast with your reactions, just on the off chance that that happens, the aircraft automatically will descend to 10,000 feet where you can breathe again and you can be fine. It just ensures that whatever happens, you will be able to, to survive what, what happens, bad. you know, even if something really completely out of the ordinary happens. So they're, they're always upgrading aircraft yes. to make sure that it's more and more safe, really. It's, it's brilliant. It has a, it has a function that where you can break just the right amount so that the passengers don't feel like it's forceful and it will take you, it will ensure that you break in just the amount of distance that you want to get off a particular exit from the runway. So it's brilliant because they've thought about safety and they've thought about passenger comfort, which is everything you want really in an aircraft. That's I love it when I learn something new. That's that's new. That's new stuff. That's what about? Uh, I know one of the things that Airbus bought in was. I think they might have it in the, the newer Boeing's as well. Is this this thing about the, when you're going through turbulence, you've got certain settings that you can put. It, I don't know if I made this up. Maybe I'm imagining it. <laughs> Pilots used to say, "Well, we just slow down a bit because then it's it's less less bumpy." But there, I'm sure there's some sort of soft setting. Have I, have I made this up? Am I talking rubbish? 
to be honest, the our our procedure is actually yes to come back to just make sure that we stay within certain speeds, just to make sure that we've got plenty of margin between overspeeding and underspeeding. But other than that, actually, we are told keep the autopilot in and the auto thrust because it can manage the variation in speeds really well. And so actually. Even if it's, if I think it's probably hard coded, yes, but it's just that the aircraft is really good at maintaining its its altitude and and speed, and you might see a little bit of a of a variation, but they're really very small. You know, you you yeah. A couple of random questions then. So, have you ever been scared on a flight? So. I haven't necessarily been scared, but had feelings of maybe nervousness or anxiety when I've been sitting in my seat, not as a pilot, as a passenger, and the blinds are down because it's a night flight, for example, and we go through turbulence because you don't know when it's you're about to encounter or when it's about to end. Mm. So it's the anticipation that is the worst, I think. And when you're sitting there in the middle of turbulence, you can't relax because you you don't know when it's going to stop. So you're always in that kind of state of high Mm. alertness. Whereas when you're sitting in the pilot seat and you can see when you're about to maybe enter a cloud or or something like that and it looks like maybe there's a little bit of of turbulence it's so much better in a way for your anxiety and nervousness because you can in a way brace yourself for what's about to come you can see it happening so you can just think in your head okay i'm about to go through turbulence everything will be fine and then you go through it and you just feel quite relaxed because that is what your brain anticipated mm. that it mm. was going to be have terminus and then when you can see the end of the cloud then again you can relax because you know it's over and it basically ensures that you're not in that constant flight you know or freeze kind of situation which i think when you're as a passenger and you can't see what is happening it just it, yeah it makes it very difficult and and easily leads to i think anxiety and nervousness mm-hmm. but in general it's been it's been because i've felt like i i'm not the one who's in control of what is happening that i think is what is hardest yes. but if there's anything to be said about about pilots is that they are constantly trained regularly go back into the simulator to really make sure that they are suitably trained to handle any event so at the end of the day when I remember that as a passenger that's when I think okay I can I can try and relax into this and just remember that actually if I think about facts the pilots are really well trained and they can handle this and I can just let go of control just for the flight. Yeah, so that's really good, actually, because a lot of pilots who've been on the podcast will say that during turbulence and they're not, cabin, they're not they're in the cabin, they're not bothered because they know it's safe. And, and I think, so I get the sense of, you know it's safe, you're not worried about that side of it, but you just don't like the fact, you don't know when it's going to end and you don't, weren't expecting it, so you don't have the same information. So in a way... It goes to show that pilots are humans too. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I mean, we go through human factors training as well. So I think we're we talk a lot about stress, flight, freeze, etc. And I think sometimes having talking about it openly. I mean, the way that your podcast does is a great way of just trying to trying to have a bit of perspective on what's what's happening inside we all have those moments where we're we're overthinking and and get just just caught like rabbit in the headlights a little bit and to have these types of podcasts or open forums where you can discuss things and you realize okay I'm I'm not the only one and and actually mm. what what proves that what my that my fear is real or what disproves you know my fear nice. and I think it's it's good to have different uh perspectives and yeah to, to to talk about it really love that that's brilliant so <laughs> to, so quick question then another quick question what's the best bit about your job what do you love about it i'm not gonna lie since going long haul i've absolutely loved going down <laughs> it's been brilliant that's been brilliant but if i think about the the, the actual flying the best bit is when you get you get into a place where the aircraft feels so comfortable this the environment you're so confident you've got the air traffic that is talking to you at the same time as you're changing your heading and you're thinking about the next step is is now when i release the the, the passenger seat belts okay now i need to think about the the light switches etc when you're multitasking and a lot is going on, but it's very controlled because mm. you've trained for this and you've got yourself into a state of flow, if you like. It is the most rewarding feeling. And that is exactly what I think I went into flying for. What I felt when when I was 17, you know, that state of that, that, that peaceful, that quietness in your head. That is what I love about flying and why I think it will be my my forever career you know to to have that moment where everything comes together and you're able to to stay in control but it's very it's very smooth and and just beautiful you've got the the best view in the world really so I absolutely love this job it is it is amazing it really is we're very oh, lucky that's fantastic I mean I think that sounds like it'll keep you going until you become the CEO of Virgin. <laughs> Is that right? President. Right. No, no. Is Shy getting nervous? <laughs> no, definitely not. From a five foot two. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Honestly, Sasha, that was that was fantastic. There's some really lovely bits there. So I'm just going to ask you for one sort of last message then before I say, if anybody just listen to this they're, they're scared of flying what's your sort of your big top tip or thing to think about that might help them you know take your time there's a lot of different things what i what i would say is actually is actually maybe more suited to any types of fear or stressors but something that i certainly really helped me during covid especially because obviously it was quite nerve-wracking mm. that i i was certainly felt very anxious during that time 
a lot of things were new and I was recommended to go cold water swimming or essentially you can take cold showers and really from the first day that I did it I just remember thinking I can't do this what am I thinking yeah I, I feel really stressed about going into the cold I feel uncomfortable but once you put yourself in it just go for it just do it and then come out you realize that you've just done something that two seconds ago you thought you couldn't do and the more you do that in a really small way it's just going into the shower and then coming back out right with cold water but that really helped me to have some perspective on my fears and my anxiety and it gave me a huge amount more confidence in myself and how I can face my fears because I think a lot of the people that are listening flying is all around us and I'm sure that they've got family members that want to go on holiday but they feel nervous so they can't go it's it's really tough and it there's a lot of fear of missing out etc but so it's not always something that you can totally ignore just like most of the, the fears that we have in real in in life so I would just recommend to just do it in a small scale face your fears in a small scale and you will realize that you can work through it and the other thing i'd say is talk talk about it if you're sitting if you're sitting in an aircraft and you haven't brought a friend or family member just speak to the person next to you and just tell them i mm. feel a little bit nervous i'm mm. a nervous flyer i just want to let you know just in case I, you know, if I hold your hand in the takeoff, do you mind, etc. Just talking about it, you'll realize that some, those people probably also feel a bit nervous and just sharing it, first of all, will mean that you'll be a little bit distracted. Think of something else. You'll share in something, you'll connect with someone else. So that just naturally makes you feel happier, brings that, those endorphins back out and makes you feel understood so that you don't end up internalizing the the fear and the anxiety which i think can can sometimes just stop us from from just freeze us completely really so that would be my two tips <laughs> for it yeah you squeeze another one out. that's fine <laughs> it's okay that was brilliant honestly i can't believe that how quickly that time's gone <laughs> I could easily do another hour listening to you and i'd have to go i'm going to invite you back you might say no and <laughs> And ghost me, but I think that there's just such lovely, normal stuff in there and some really inspiring, helpful bits. And I can't thank you enough for giving your time today. Thank no, you. thank you so much. Honestly, it's been such a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. So I normally find it so awkward and nerve wracking talking about myself, but thank you so much for making me feel so comfortable. I, I generally oh, mean you've it. You've been amazing. You've been amazing, Sorsha, honestly. And, and I really cannot wish you enough good luck because I've got more people like you up in the flight deck <laughs> uh, I just think it'd be brilliant you know it's like a whole new generation coming through bringing a, another slant to it I love that so wish thank you, all you well. so and, much you know and I'll let Shy know that uh, he's safe for a little <laughs> while Shy's, Shy's the, uh, the the big boss in Virgin Atlantic in case anyone doesn't know who he is yeah, so I'll let him know so you can relax Saoirse's all right <laughs> thanks Paul <laughs>